0: Hi, this is Matthew Philp. In lieu of a new episode this week, we thought that we would mark 4th of July by reposting an episode from Season 1, in which Aaron and I spoke with beloved American actor and writer Barbara Felden. We recorded this interview with Barbara before quarantine took effect in New York City, so we were lucky enough to be able to go to the Upper East Side apartment in which she's lived for decades and record in her formal dining room, which is why you might notice that there's a bit of an echo. Enjoy!
1: He was so astute, you know, about people. And he knew I was going to get hurt. And, of course, when he told me that, I didn't appreciate it at all. I was furious.
0: This is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about daddy issues, father figures, and dismantling the paternal mystique. It's easy to be impressed by actress and author Barbara Felden. She's danced at the Copacabana and on Broadway. In 1957, she won the $64,000 question and achieved international fame playing the smart and sexy sidekick Agent 99 on Mel Brooks's Get Smart, a show that's been in perpetual reruns since it first aired in 1965. But despite her success, she never quite understood how to win her father's approval. On this episode, Barbara talks about how her relationship with her father formed the template for her relationships with men for decades, how despite his being distant and remote, her father could see right through her conman husband, and how she eventually overcame her need for male approval.
1: I grew up in the suburbs of Pittsburgh. No one actually lived in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh was where you went to the department store, to Kaufman's and Horn's department store. Uh, so that was a big trip from the suburbs. So if we went in the morning, uh, we would see Pittsburgh as the trolley came across the Smithfield Street Bridge. You would suddenly see Pittsburgh beginning to emerge through the smog.
2: And you have one sister? You, you grew I up had a sister,
1: sister? yes.
2: And was she older or younger? She
1: was three years older. Uh-huh.
2: And so... Your father was a traveling salesman, right? My dad,
1: when, um, when I was very young, my dad traveled most of the time. He was home about one day a week or one day every two weeks on a weekend. Uh, so he was a very glamorous presence to me because he would come in and suddenly all the focus was on him. He was like a visiting star. And he was traveling for a paper box company selling folded boxes for eggs and toys and all kinds of things
2: like door to door or to no no to merchants
1: to merchants yeah to people who needed a lot of egg crates and that kind of thing but he had a territory which was all over Pennsylvania and part of Ohio and um, he would sometimes bring home I remember once I was four years old, maybe. I didn't know he'd come home, and I came up the steps to the front door, and the door opened, he was there. And he had a box, and it was toys, and he handed it to me. I remember that vividly. And that was one of his cartons, you know, that they uh, packaged the toys in. My dad was a very good-looking guy, and in those days... Salesmen. There was a kind of image for salesmen. You know, they were usually fairly handsome mm-hmm. and had a charming personality. My dad was six foot five, so he was very imposing. I'm sure he was very good. He had a side to him that was could be very charming, and uh, he continued selling, and being away, until I was six years old. And then he began staying home, and until then, he was to me a visiting celebrity. Did he have the hat? Oh, my gosh.
2: Did he have a lot yes, of hats? Yes,
1: but everybody had a hat. Yeah. I mean, the hat went right through the 50s, yeah. and it was, there was a kind of formality, and also that costume, I think, set them in the eyes of a child. Uh, that was the wardrobe of someone important, and it also gave a sense of occasion yeah. to anything. I mean, when you see old photos of people going to ball games in the 40s that every man has a hat on, or the subway, every man has a hat on. Yeah. And that's, like, gone now, right? Yeah.
0: Did that change at all, or your view of him change once he was no longer away as much?
1: Oh, absolutely. Up until then, he was almost mythic. And that sort of mythic quality of him did continue because once he started staying home, he was definitely in charge. Up until that time, I'd been raised by women. My mother, and because she was in a strange city and she had no friends there, she went to work as a bookkeeper in a mayonnaise plant.
2: Really? Yeah,
1: yeah. So she would leave every morning on the trolley, and she would leave me to the ministrations of Mrs. Mannion. And Mrs. Mannion was this sort of tank of a German woman. And her jurisdiction was the house and me in that descending order. We lived in a little neighborhood. It was certainly safe, of red brick. Well, they were kind of black brick because it was Pittsburgh. <laughs> and it was everything was covered with soot. And um, I would sometimes go to, there was a certain neighbor, and I would knock on her door, and she, she had no children. And she would invariably give me a butterscotch lollipop, which was heaven. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mostly, I wandered around by myself, but I knew that in all the houses, there was a woman. There were no men. Every house had a woman in it. Gotcha. And I felt, you know, completely safe, if a little lonely. But uh, then when my father began staying home, suddenly it was a man-dominated household. And it changed. It changed everything. It was not as much fun and yet more exciting in a way because every little girl is sort of madly in love with her dad. And he was so uh, unique, you know, in our little circle. My sister, my mom, and me.
2: Surrounded by girls. Yeah. Were
1: they in love? My dad and mom? Yeah. They belonged to each other. I mean, it was really like a monarchy in a way. You Ooh. know, the king and queen. Mm-hmm. The king and queen loved each other. And then we were the courtiers in okay. the family. You were the this...
0: courtiers, not the princesses. You were the courtiers.
1: Oh, oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, because it, it's very, yeah, that's very astute of you. Uh, yes, it was more like being a courtier, actually. Uh, to to court my dad, to try to please him, to court my mom, you know, to pull her chair out for her, to do all these little Things to get her attention more back on me, Mm -hmm. and not so much on my dad. So there was a little tug of war, I think, between the children and the father.
2: Did did he play favorites? Was there a sense of hierarchy?
1: Oh, my mother was the center of his world. He was not a particularly social man. I mean, it's funny because he had such a social job. It was very much the social life was the two of them, and she catered to him. And he, he never, I never heard him say one crossword to her. He, he adored her. I, I know she loved him. And she took care of him. And she, and she would say, uh, Ray always comes first. And the girls know that. And we did know it. And we accepted that. That's the way it was. But this was a different time in America, too. And fathers then, I don't think, well, I mean, I know, fathers then were the sole support of the family. So it gave them a tremendous credential. And mothers were to support the fathers. And if the mother, say she had family or a great number of friends or something, and the father's job was going to take him to the other side of the world, there was no question that she would pack up and go. I mean, I think that my father grew up in that kind of defined environment with a certain standard. He then went to military school, which he loved. And then he spent a year at Annapolis, which he didn't like, but he wanted to go to West Point. So his mentality was kind of a military mentality, which I think reflects the time and the structure of what a man is at that time. And uh, he always admired the concept of masculinity. People who went camping and went out and shot the wild boar and things like that.
0: So what was time like between you, just the two of you?
1: There wasn't any, really. Uh, Once he started staying home, he'd come home and he'd read the newspaper. And then he would have a drink with my mother. They would always have a drink, like you know. Did you
2: have a bar cart on the side of the living room? You know how, like a martini, darling, as he walked <laughs> in the yeah. door.
1: No, we were very middle class. Okay, so the... that's
2: a more of an upper class movie.
1: Yes, prop yes. Thing. The, right, that's a '40s movie. Yeah. Um, no, <laughs> this we, was real life. Did this you, was that's life. a '40s movie. <laughs> I can't <laughs> talk. Yeah, the the liquor was in the kitchen okay. in the cupboard.
0: Did you have friends from school or? Uh, friends from the neighborhood whose parents would interact with your parents? Like, how did your father compare to your friend's father?
1: Um, All of the fathers, I'm thinking in the first part of my life, uh, up until I was about 15, uh, when we moved to a certain neighborhood, uh, up until then, all of the fathers I knew were just like my dad. They were remote from their children. They had the responsibility of the family. They'd, there wasn't this concept of being close to your kids or being friends with your kids. Your kids were your responsibility to raise in a certain way. And dinner time was, at that time, when I was at that age, there was no television. But if there had been, it would not have been on. Dinner table was a time to talk and to practice good manners, and which were very strict. You couldn't put anything above your wrists on the table. You had to be very careful not to chew with your mouth open, not to make any noise when you chew. And um, you weren't supposed to mix your food together or anything. Everything should remain separate and be eaten in an orderly fashion. And I remember those dinners both with a sense of pleasure because we were all together every night. So this contributed to a foundation of security that I had with my family. And no matter what difficulties my dad and I might have, I felt safe. He was strong. He knew all the answers. He made all the money, you can imagine. I mean, this was a Superman to me.
2: Did you go to church as a family? Uh,
1: my family did not so much. I mean, my parents did not, except on Easter. Uh-huh. They went to church. They did give money to the church regularly. They tithe,d you know. He gave ten percent to the church regularly. I went to Sunday school, and so yes, uh, that was not not necessarily a good thing because I became obsessed with God. I was about six, I think, and I wanted to please God, who must have been a transference of my dad onto God, and I thought God didn't love me, and that unless. I did all these things right, so I did all kinds of things. Like I would open the window in winter and kneel shivering in front of the window, begging God to forgive me for something I didn't know. I I didn't even know what I was being forgiven for, you know. But if I talk back to my mom or you know, amazing number of things, and my parents became alarmed. <laughs> I mean. Uh, Uh, My grandfather gave me $5 once, which was a huge amount of money for a little kid, you know? Yeah. I right away just popped it in the charity can at school. I mean, I, and it wasn't really right behavior for a kid. And so they went to the doctor and they said, you know, what do we do?
2: (laughs) Our our daughter has given away all all of our savings to the church. Where'd she get this idea? yeah, Yeah, yeah.
1: And, um, and the doctor said, keep her away from Sunday school. I, I believed everything they said, all the hellfire and brimstone and the dire things that would happen to me if I wasn't perfect, and it was not good. God was the supreme older man. Sure,
0: supreme <laughs> older man. Yeah.
1: And
2: did that faith, if it was faith, carry you through your teenage years, and how did the the Folks in the late 40s and 50s deal with like the puberty talk with it with it, their
1: daughter. Oh, uh, the you mean the actual puberty talk? I guess the birds and the
2: bees, like when you started to. Oh, there were
1: no birds and bees. There's
2: none of that. No. Yeah. (laughs) No. Um,
1: I mean, there were certain things you did have to handle, which my mother handled. And when my sister came of age, she took me with my sister into the bathroom and showed us both how you deal with it. But that is the most information we had. I did not have any idea that menstruation for example had anything to do with having children nor did I know how the whole thing happened so when I was six I asked my dad
2: you asked your dad not your I
1: mom. asked my oh I know what happened my little friend Peggy Ittings told me one day that babies came out of women's stomachs I thought that was hilarious <laughs> I, I thought that was so stupid and like I said, the
2: "Belly button or something
1: uh, yeah, yeah, well, who knew? you know they come out of their stomachs. that's ridiculous. So I said, "No, that that is so stupid." And she said, "No, no, she insisted, she'd spread her little chubby Irish legs and said they come out of So when I got home, <laughs> I, I said, I told my mother the story, and she said, "Well, why don't you ask your father?" <laughs>
0: So she had a sense of humor. <laughs>
1: no, 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 she didn't want to deal with it. <laughs> wow. uh, and she said, Well, Peggy might be right, but why don't you talk to your dad about it? So when Daddy came home, I looked up the six foot five of him. <laughs> He's like a tree. And I told him this silly story. And he said, Well, actually, she's right. They do. And I said, Well, how do they get in there? And he said, Well, When a man and a woman get married, they mingle their bloodstreams, and then a baby forms in the woman's stomach. And in my mind, I thought they cut their veins, their wrists, and then they put their wrists together and they mingle their bloodstreams, and then that makes a baby. (laughs) And I said to him, I'm never getting married. And my dad said, just kind of smiled, and he said, well, you may change your mind about that. Hmm. I knew I wouldn't, I didn't think I would. (laughs) What a gory mess having a baby was. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, for sure. I mean, I guess it is really, but in a different way. Yes,
0: yeah, exactly. At what point did you decide to leave home?
1: I think pretty early because I, well, I I mean, I must have, I would have had to be 12 or 13. I'd begun studying ballet. And I knew that all happened in New York, that you couldn't be a ballet dancer in Pittsburgh there was no venue for it. And my dance teacher, Jean Ralph, had danced with the Metropolitan Opera. So ballet was placed in my head. And also I was looking at Life magazine and and dreaming about, you know, this glamorous place, New York. So I think that it gradually just became a certainty that I would leave. And but then of course when I went to college in Pittsburgh to Carnegie it was then Carnegie Tech Drama School, it's now Carnegie Mellon. There was no question that I was going to go to New York. So it was from probably from the time I was about twelve and I knew what was here in New York. I also was aware of the life that you live if you are going to live a traditional life, the template that was presented to me. And I knew I didn't want that, that it wasn't exciting enough. And in this regard, my dad, who later did not support affirmative action for women, he was very conservative at the beginning. And he had two girls, you would think. But that was separate. That was politics. That was separate from, you're my daughter you can do anything you want to do as long if you love it. I mean, you can choose anything as long as you can be independent in the world doing it. And that's, that was the only thing. And I knew that and accepted it, and that seemed fair. And they never resisted anything I wanted to do. And that's a huge freedom. They never clung. They never made familial demands. And they set their children free. And I really am very, very grateful to them for that.
2: So when you got to New York and you had some really early success with modeling, right? You ended up winning the $64,000 question in 1957, right? Right. That was like pretty soon after you moved to the city?
1: I came here right when I graduated in 55, So I was here two years before that happened. I first modelled at Saks Fifth Avenue for a few months. And then I... Oh, then I got a job dancing at the Copacabana, which was the greatest thrill of my whole life. At
0: the Copacabana, wow. Huh? I've heard about it, the Copacabana. Sorry, that's cool. Oh, my God, it was
1: so thrilling. What was your costume? Oh, it was like a Marilyn Monroe kind of spaghetti dress, one of them, all like sheath cut up the side... All, all sequins, all sparkles. Ooh, la, la. Uh, that was one of the costumes. There was a Portuguese outfit with these ruffled skirts for the high kicks and all of that. Oh my God! But it was, it was the Copacabana. I mean, you can only be that age to ha- to be able to wring the thrill out of the experience of dancing at the Copacabana <laughs> with the flashing lights and, a, and an orchestra and stars coming in, like Jimmy Durante, and we danced behind him as he was doing his act. It was show business. I mean, it was just uh, just all shiny and mad.
0: How were you getting these, these cool gigs?
1: Auditioning. And, you know, I just showed up. <laughs> that and practically everything else for the next two years was bathing suit audition. <laughs> you know, you showed up in your bathing suit and your high heels, and then if you could dance a little, that was, you know... And after that, it was being a showgirl in a Broadway show and walking down staircases and, you know, and big hair. A lot of silent roles. Yes, yes. Ornamental yeah. roles. Ornamental yeah. roles, thank yeah. you. Yes, it depended a lot on ornamentality of one. And it was when I was doing the showgirl gig that the $64,000 question asked me to be on the show.
2: Like through an agent?
1: No, they, they saw in... Um, The New York Times magazine section did a big spread on the showgirls in this particular show. It was a remake of the Ziegfeld Follies.
2: For viewers who don't know or listeners, the $64,000 question at the time was like the biggest game show in the country, right? It was a cultural phenomenon or a pop culture phenomenon. Yeah. Like winning the championship to Jeopardy! but over a number of
1: days.
0: Like, who wants to be a millionaire kind of thing?
1: Yeah. So they gave us a test to see if you wear feathers, you can have a brain. And then there were these questions like, which is smarter, a mouse or a chicken? And we we were just fooling around in the dressing room answering these questions, which were so silly. And somehow they said I got a perfect score and I was the only one who got the perfect score, which didn't make me popular in the dressing room because there's no reason I should have. And then they called me in and the producers of our show wanted me to do it because it was publicity for the show.
2: yeah, Major
1: publicity for the show. So I at first turned it down completely because I'm not an expert on anything. And then I had met a man who would become my husband, and he encouraged me to think of a category that I might study for, or, you know, make a run at it anyway. So I picked Shakespeare because I was reading through all of Shakespeare then, I thought, which I've never gotten through. (laughs) It's an ongoing, (laughs) an an ongoing aspiration. Um, So I asked them if they could give me three months so I could just cram my brain with a lot of useless information about Shakespeare. (laughs) And they said yes, and so I did. And I studied like crazy, nothing that has anything to do with the true value of Shakespeare, but things like dates and characters' names and speeches and blah, blah. So that's how that happened.
0: You did this with the man that would become your husband. He was guiding you through this Three-month period. No,
1: he w- well, he encouraged me to do it. Okay. Um, he was away a lot of the time then, and I was very enamored with him, so I really did it to please him, like I did everything to please my dad.
2: Can you talk a little bit more about him, because he's such a central figure to your book, Getting Smarter, which hopefully is soon to be published because it's so beautifully written. But oh, Thank you. he was such a character... Can you talk about him and then how that... Was he sort of your first love, would you say, like once you were out of your father's house?
1: Oh, absolutely. I'd had boyfriends. Yeah. But Lucien, his name was Lucien Felden. Lucien was, when I met him, he told me, he was an airline pilot for Air France, which was pretty glamorous to begin with. And he was the half-brother of a famous French movie star called Jean-Pierre Aumont. And he looked like him, although he was even handsomer than Jean-Pierre. And he lived in Paris part-time, and I was so dazzled by him. He was so handsome, and he knew wines, and he knew vintages of wines. I mean, he was just so French. And, of course, if you grew up in Pittsburgh, anything French was the most exotic thing in the world because at that time, French was the international language, diplomatic language, right? France was really reigning in everything, fashion and, you know, champagnes and French lovers and here was one, and, you know.
2: Culture.
1: Yeah. So that was the man I met And I think that he was probably inspired when he heard that the $64,000 question wanted me to be on the show, inspired by the dollar signs.
0: He was inspired to get to know you, or...
1: He was inspired to, uh, I think that... Help
2: you make some money that he could help you spend. Yes. (laughs) There
1: we go. (laughs) I've read the books. Yes. yes. (laughs) That he was, um, yeah. That, that he saw a kid that he was, I mean, he was a kid too. He was two years older than me. He was a gambler, and he might have been excited by the prospect of having some gambling funds. I didn't know he was gambling at that time.
0: So what do your parents know about all of this at the time? Were you communicating with them regularly?
1: Of course, they were thrilled. They were. You know, and very supportive. And of course I wanted them to meet Lucien. And my dad, the minute he saw him, knew. The minute he saw him, he knew. And, I mean, Lucien gambled uncontrollably, which made him something of a con man, you know, in order to get funds. So we went home. I went home to present Lucien. And it was a My mother was charmed the same way I was with the French accent and the whole backstory of him and his father working in the resistance. And my father just looked at him and saw the whole picture very calmly. And, you know, I think that's something else that I admire about my dad. He was so astute, you know, about people. And he knew, and he knew I was going to get hurt. And, of course, when he told me that, I didn't appreciate it at all. I was furious.
2: How soon after they met did he talk
1: to you? Uh, We had gone to Pittsburgh for a few days, and after a very stiff dinner with my dad, where my dad really didn't respond to Lucien well, he was in the kitchen. I went in, and and he was leaning against the sink having a glass of water, and he said, what are you going to do when he takes your money and leaves
0: you? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you it saying? It
1: right out there. Wow. You know? like uh, I was angry and I said if he ever did that the money would be the least of the pain. And Lucien did not leave me. Ultimately I left him. <laughs> but yeah. he did take the money.
2: <laughs> and it was a was a ten- ten-year relationship? How how uh, nine years altogether?
1: We lived together for a year, and then we were married for eight. But the last year was pretty much the divorce. You know, yeah. I was doing a series in the you know Get Smart yeah. television series at that time
2: transition into that? Because that wasn't long after, or was that concurrent with the $64,000 question?
1: No, the $64,000 question was 1957. I did Get Smart in 1965. So there were a lot of years. And once I found out about Lucien, he told me finally that he had taken all of the money And gambled it away in six weeks after the show. And you didn't even know? know. I had no idea. I thought we had agreed it would be in a trust fund, and he facilitated the trust fund. Sure. And uh, at that time, also, he told me that he was working for the CIA underground. And that's one reason that I trusted him so much, because he said he knew he had a connection from his CIA connections, an economist. Who knew how to set this thing up? So I gave it to him to set it up. And so for two years, I thought that's what had been done with the money, although stupidly. Well, you do, you don't think to ask for the papers or anything. It was
2: well, and the men in your life had taken care of the money.
1: That's right, right. always,
2: always. Right. And you know, he in a trustworthy way, husband, and you loved yeah. him.
0: Do you think that they were? I mean, you must. Look back now and see red flags. I mean, He,
1: he must have worn a pretty good hat. I right. Mean,
0: he wore the hell I out mean, of a hat. He was a Frenchman so... in a hat, yeah.
1: <laughs> he was brilliant. Um, when I first met him, he was away a lot. And so he said that he was, because he was an airlines pilot, it was his cover to do work for the CIA. Could
2: he fly a plane?
1: No. <laughs> no, later he yeah. took flying lessons. Actually, we both did. Uh, Much later on, after I found out all of the truth. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing about everything in life. That sometimes the things that sound like really bad things are really amazing adventures that you wouldn't have missed for anything in the world. Uh, To have been that much in love. And my mother said this to me way, way later on, way after the divorce. Mm -hmm. She said, I'm so glad that you had what you had with Lucien," And I was surprised, you know. And I said, but... I mean, considering the way it worked out, and she said, yes. She said, because you were so in love, and not everybody gets that. You know, that experience of being over the moon, Mm -hmm. and it went on for years with Lucien you know, and I'm grateful too, and I'm grateful to him for giving me the adventure I had with him. But no, the CIA experience, he said I was being followed. It was very exciting. I would, I would go in buildings one door and come out another trying to shake off the people. The KGB was following me (laughs) and, and our guys were following me. Their guys were following me. I saw spies everywhere. Yeah, it was really heady.
0: It's a great sense of research for the TV show that you then went on to actually play. Right.
1: Well, the irony, somebody
0: <laughs> being chased by ostensibly the KGB, yeah.
1: <laughs> yes, the irony that I ended up playing a spy, right, a in a trench agent. coat, yeah, like Lucien's trench coat. Did Lucian? He even had a trench coat. I mean,
2: of course. Did he advise you on on that for the role, even though it was, you know.
1: No, that was way after God. he had admitted everything. and
0: That is wild. It's that a is wild That is wild that you were with somebody who was not in the CIA and that had you walking in and out of doors improperly and then seven years or so later you're on television playing somebody who is doing that. That, that is completely wild to me. Yeah, yeah. Your is. mother says retroactively she was very pleased that yeah. you had this. That's an understandable response, Yeah, I didn't really. get hurt. Right. And you have survived. Yeah, With oh, no my God. ambiguity there. Yeah. But I think, why, where what was your father's take? Was he consistently like stern and I'm not having this?
1: Well, another thing about WASP fathers, they're very hands-on telling you what to do when you're little. To guide you and to form you. But once you're an adult, they respect, or at least he did. Mm-hmm. He respected who I was. He never brought it up again. Never mentioned it again. Even when you divorced? No. Wow.
0: He'd said his piece, I guess.
1: <laughs> uh, he, he said it one time. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah.
0: So does that then, that was pretty hurtful when he said it. But then do you, did that endear you to him in a certain way? Did you kind of well, go, Yeah, oh, he knew and he was tough loving me, kind of?
1: Yeah, I have this inbred admiration for my dad on many levels. And, you know, I have to give it to him that he was right. I never said that to him. However, mm-hmm. I was much too proud to do that.
2: Was he a demonstrative father? Like no. with his love, Was their physical, you know,
1: hugging and... No, that that was not in the family at all. You know, the funny thing is, this is really interesting, uh, Erin, that you're talking to different people about their fathers. And I would love to hear what others' fathers were like. And especially anyone who is anywhere close to my age, who grew up closer to the era when I grew up. Um, No, there was no physical affection. We felt loved. We knew, in quotes, knew, we knew we were loved. No one touched us, no one patted our hair, or at night when we went to bed, we kissed my mother, kissed my father on the cheek. They did not hug us, they accepted the kiss, and that was the tradition to kiss mommy and daddy good night, and then you go to bed. And expressions my mother would say she loved us, my father never did. And one, once later, and I respected his diffidence, because later when I was, oh my God, I was probably in my 50s, and I was on the phone with him, and we talked every week on the phone, and I was on the phone with him, and as we were going to hang up, I said, I love you, Pop. And he said, all right, goodbye. <laughs> It was too uncomfortable. Even
2: in your 50s, and yeah. he was in his 70s.
1: So I knew it was not a kind thing to do to tell him I loved him or to touch him. Or, mm-hmm. And even his last illness in the hospital, I, I thought, should I put my hand on his arm? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I couldn't do it because I knew he'd be uncomfortable. He never had that in his own family, you know, and that's yeah. where that comes from. Uh, his mother. And he had no relationship with his dad. So I understand that. And yeah,
2: very little tenderness.
1: No, yeah, oh, absolutely none when okay. he was growing up. So I think he did pretty well considering what his childhood was. Yeah.
0: Did you see? I was going to ask you this question, and you've kind of answered it. Did you ever see any evidence of your father's suffering? because of the role that he had to play, and also because of the generation into which he was born. Was there a palpable sense of suffering because he couldn't accept affection from you?
1: There was, I know now, that he wanted so much to be close to us, and he wanted us to like him. But the role, it was so established that he was out of reach that we could not approach him that way. And the one time, and it, it makes me sad to remember this, there had been a snowstorm and I was about 11 years old. And I sometimes helped my dad if there were snow or something, I would go out and help him shovel, mm-hmm. you know, or if he was washing the car, he would have me do the chrome. And I always liked that, that I was, I was doing something with daddy. Uh, So it was the activity that it was him, activity, me, and the activity was the bridge between us. But without that bridge, there seemed to be no, no form to follow to be able to get together. So we were shoveling snow this day, and my dad out of the blue said, no one has more fun than you and me, right? And I was so stunned, and I just stared at him, and I said... I don't know. I knew I couldn't say no because he had indicated what it should be, but I couldn't say yes because it simply wasn't true. And so I said I don't know, and he was so hurt, and I knew it. Wow. He got, just got silent. And uh, today, you he,
2: still remember every.
1: He was reaching out, you know, and I couldn't. I I couldn't. It was like he was reaching out a hand. I couldn't take it. Mm. Well, it was cause and effect. But
0: that's not necessarily surprising. He was formidable. And that's a real change in behavior there for him. And your whole life, you'd experience this formidable, safe, stable person. And all of a sudden, tenderness. I mean, that's entirely human. That you wouldn't be able to suddenly accept that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm sorry I couldn't... I don't blame myself, but... Right, yeah. yeah. Good. Yeah. (laughs) Can you
2: talk about the role that father figures have played in your life or
1: like how do you view men? That's a great question. For a long time the the men that I encountered were directors. I was always terrified of making a mistake or when I was doing Get Smart.
2: Which is Mel Brooks right?
1: No, no, Mel wrote it. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, I didn't really interact much with him gotcha. in that regard. I mean, I, I know him, he's lovely, but <laughs> yeah. he wasn't on the set. But uh, the head of the, the executive producer, uh, Leonard Stern, when he would come down on the set, I would worry that I would make a mistake or do something. It wasn't his fault. He was perfectly, you know, embracing of me and yeah. not critical in any way, but I always assumed criticism because there had been so much criticism. Growing up, it was like you everything had to be corrected. So it inhibited me somewhat, and certainly in the maybe the first year or so of doing the series, I was trying too hard to please. And that comes from the childhood and because there were no women, this is nineteen sixty five, there were no women in charge of anything. There weren't producers who were women or writers or directors. It was an all-male everything, and I was the only woman except for the wardrobe person and the hair person. They were women. And so I was surrounded by this male essence all the time, and I wasn't really comfortable in it. And it was my problem, totally. But then, as I got more therapy... And understood what was happening here and began to see men as just ordinary human beings, you know, who were as fallible as the rest of us. Some of the God dust kind of got brushed off of them, which was really important. I always had older men who were mentors Mm -hmm. of mine, and it was never sexual. And the interesting thing was that, that their wives or girlfriends or whatever were perfectly comfortable with my friendship with their significant other, and I, evidently they thought I was non—you know—that I, uh, yeah, I wasn't a problem to them, and uh, which was true. I, I mean, I wasn't going to threaten anything of theirs. It wasn't that kind of relationship. But because men had so much more experience in the world, mm-hmm. it fell very easily into a father thing.
0: What about your relationship with gay men? Was that, in Hollywood, I realized that they weren't out as much as they are now, but did you have a different relationship with any of the gay men you knew?
1: I wasn't meeting any in L.A. That's shocking. Uh, (laughs) I I mean... (laughs) That you knew of. That I, yeah, well, most everybody was married, but, oh, the gay men I knew were the, and when I would do variety shows and dance, the choreographer and the dance captain and that kind of thing, they were...
0: Did you have the same? Did they have the God Dust? Oh, did they have the? Well, energy? I guess they have oh, the, Absolutely. Yeah, oh the, my God. They are the power. I guess.
1: Oh my God! Yes. I mean, I'm thinking of one guy uh, who who's a dear, dear friend, and he has. It's energy. It there is something different, and it isn't just that he's extremely handsome, that which is just knocks you sideways when you see him. But it's the same. It's the same. There's there is something different. And it, and it isn't power. It is energy.
2: So it's the mid-60s or the, like, 68 or something, when you're at, at, at some point you move to Los Angeles.
1: I went to Los Angeles to do the series. I really hated leaving New York because I was still in love with it, and I still am now that I'm back. I went to do the series, and Lucien and I were... Struggling because I noticed they'd begun gambling again. He was going to high stakes poker parties and yet denying it. And so for the first year of Get Smart, he flew out every other week and we had a weekend together. And then I came back during our hiatuses, which happened occasionally during the week. But then we were not doing well because I, by that time, understood his character so much more and knew that he had a sociopathic character. And sociopaths, I didn't know this at the time, but I do now, that their brains are developed differently so that the conscience factor in the brain is not functioning the way it would with those of us who are not sociopathic. So I couldn't believe anything he said, and I saw that his money was going down the drain with mm-hmm. gambling, and then once I found a piece of paper with my name written on it several times, uh, I thought he'd been doodling, but he'd been practicing my signature. So I locked up all my money, and, but we were still married. And But then, the second year of Get Smart, a man named Burton Hodelic came to be the line producer. Mm -hmm. And he and I became friends first, and then we fell in love, and I left Lucien. So Lucien never did leave me. I, I left him. I think I was still in that sort of needy place where I thought I had to have a guy, which has certainly changed radically over time. And I was happiest when I was, in quotes, in love, and Bert and I were in love, and we lived together. I did not get married again. I didn't want to get married again, and Bert was divorced, so I don't think he wanted to either. We never even discussed it, but we were definitely a couple for the next 11 years. Before that just broke up, we we just were such different people with different interests and different temperaments. I mean, it was just not a good match anymore. And then I came back to New York. But then is when I began to really exercise... Thanks to therapy.
2: Is uh, that when you got into to therapy for the first time? When you can't?
1: I had I got into therapy uh, around the time I went out to the coast. So I was beginning to work through some of the issues with Lucien at that time with that therapist, and then he became ill, and I had a different therapist, and he helped me. He helped me tremendously to gather the strength. Now here to get back to the father again. When there is a man who is the oak tree, right, and we're lesser bushes, you know, you don't gain the strength that you need to. As a girl, or I do believe if it had been a boy, it would have been worse, you know, with someone who was under the umbrella of the kind of jurisdiction that Victorian parents had. So I didn't have the natural strength and resource from my mother, because my mother was that woman who catered to the man and was beholden to my dad for everything, and did she resent it? Yes, she did. She covered it up, but she did because she wanted more. My mother wanted to be a singer when she met my dad, and then she got pregnant with him. And she, when she was nineteen, she didn't even know what sex was.
2: Yeah, clearly she didn't tell you about it. No,
1: <laughs> right, she hadn't found out yet. And uh, that was the end of her career. And then she was with a man where his interests dominated. He was interested in fishing, she went fishing. He was interested in flying, he got an airplane, and she went on all these trips with him. Ooh, another pilot. Another pilot, (laughs) yes, right. Hmm, very interesting. I've had a lot of therapy too, so I I I see the parallels. That was very good. Thank you. No, absolutely. That, That probably was a factor. So she did not have the strength, and she was a willing accomplice to him because there was no opportunity for her to make a living on her own. If she had wanted to leave him, she couldn't. There was just no... And that's why there were so few divorces in those days, because the women, what would they do? And who would their lawyer be,
2: you know? Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. Stacked. So I began to get stronger through therapy, which I've had three therapists... And they were all men, and I am so grateful to all of them. They were all evolved, enlightened men and supportive of women. And it helped me get strong enough to get free of two relationships that were completely wrong for me. You know, one was just impossible, you know, the first one, but the second one was just inappropriate for any growth on my part. I would have ended up like my mother. And so that's when I came back to New York and uh, began to to work through the issues of, in quotes, needing a man. I mean, it's not Mm -hmm. to say that if I had found someone appropriate, I wouldn't have married them or gotten together with them or whatever, but... It didn't happen that way, which was just a different kind of life. It's not worse. I have wonderful men friends, so I do get that sort of cello hum that goes between the sexes that's sublimated into just pure friendship.
2: I love that it was three men who helped heal you of that confining patriarchal standard
1: that your father sort of introduced. And the irony of that. Is that at first they were my father mm-hmm. and I totally rejected all that, that you behave towards them? Please.
0: Yeah, you tried to please them, is that yes, how, absolutely. That that
1: and part of trying to please them was trying to apply the information they were giving me and be in quotes a good patient, you know, but it made me work very hard in therapy to get better. And then, of course, at a certain part, if you've had much therapy, I don't know, you realize that you don't want to get better because you're going to lose this great daddy that you have and that they have to get you over that hump also, that the two of you have to be able to climb that mountain together until you are Mm. the only one on the mountaintop and you have shed the whole paternal need. And then, and only then, could I really relate to men for who they are what their real qualities are, not my father's qualities.
0: So how did this impact your relationship with your father?
1: During this time, there was a period of a number of years where I was not in touch with my father. And that was during a time when I was trying to emancipate myself from the whole thing. I mean, you can imagine, it was a, a very powerful hold that he had on me psychologically, mm-hmm. not physically. Not, he was not doing any demanding of it, anything. But I had to emancipate myself from the family. So during that period, we were out of touch. When we got in touch with each other again, he was so happy that I was back, and that he was very mindful, very mindful. And I appreciated that.
2: Well, is there anything else you'd like to say about father, or fathers, or dads, or anything?
1: How, how different was your dad from, I mean, I read your book, uh, and he, he could be tough.
2: Yeah, he could be tough, but I also see that real childlike quality about him that he never lost, where he was also the product of his environment and his parents, who were, I guess, the greatest generation is what they call it now, you know, the yeah. World War II, that time, and then coming of age in the 60s which was turbulent. And then losing his mother at a young age, I think I see him as a boy. So I can relate to just forgiving someone any trespass just based on how they were confined. And I think that's one of the problems with so-called patriarchal systems is that it really does hurt the men Mm -hmm. just as much as it keeps women down and and other, you know, marginalized groups, as they say, because we are all different and yet the same, Mm -hmm. and there's emotional men, and there's, it's not all, it's not all the same inside. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know, that's what this is about, getting into the interior and the nuts and bolts of through the decades and through the years.
0: But it's interesting, what you were saying about dinner with your family, was virtually identical to my family hmm. as well, it, to the wrists, mm-hmm. to how you eat, not talking with your mouth full. We would get fined if we put our elbows on the table, if we, and then we would use the money and go out for breakfast. But it just all those rules we all in place. But also my parents were more playful. I think we would do like quizzes and it would be kind of fun. Oh, yeah. But all the rules were very much in place like that. Very strictly imp- imposed as well. Mm-hmm. So it was funny you saying that. I just, yeah. Went, oh, dinner time at my house. Yes. I yeah. mean,
2: structure makes the world go round, I guess. It, you know, that's something that the family has to put in place.
0: It was sort of like we were, I was I was made aware that I was being taught how to eat so that if I had to go elsewhere, I would know how to behave.
1: Yes, and you, you know? wouldn't be, and um, part of it is like you don't want to embarrass the family and you don't want to embarrass yourself. Yeah. You want to do it right
0: right yeah within yeah. the lines my mother tells a story about how she went to a friend's house and when they went to sat down to dinner the family just put the silverware in the middle of the table and my mother was so uncomfortable she left which <laughs> I was like I mean that's somewhat high maintenance I think <laughs> but you know it's sort of like yeah well I guess and there's... you didn't
1: watch television during dinner
0: absolutely not in fact we were not allowed to watch television during school term oh okay only on in the holidays, and then eventually we wore my parents down and they let us watch TV on the weekends. But they had yeah. a lock that my stepfather made out of wood and he put a padlock on the TV <laughs> so that we, we'd ha- we weren't able to plug it in. Yeah. And then I figured out how to undo it and plug it in and then when I would hear the garage door, I'd put it back together. And I got a key at one point <laughs> and had it copied, but th- it just... The lunacy of the Well, he cut off the end of the cord at one point, but I just rewired it with another.
1: (laughs) You you were very enterprising.
2: Inspector Gadget. I did have to see
0: Inspector Gadget. (laughs)
2: And And I
0: wrote a letter to the ABC when they took it off for the season. I was like, why did you take this off television, put it back on? And they wrote me a letter back saying, he'll be back, it's fine. (laughs)
1: Oh, my God.
0: Anyway, but yeah, I related very much to... And do you,
1: do you feel that was a good thing, though, yeah. that you didn't watch all that TV? Oh, no,
0: I think that was ridiculous. <laughs> oh. But, oh, kind of. I yeah. don't think, I think we probably would have, it's like children in France drinking wine, it's not an issue if you just let them do it, and then none of them are binge drinking later on. But I think the tables, the eating at the table properly was a really good thing to learn. Yeah, yeah.
1: and the idea of conversing with the family. Yeah. Did you have that? When I mean, what was dinner?
2: Yeah, we also had the rule about when father gets home, it's time to have, and he would dictate the menu. You know, we're having, on Wednesday, we're having spaghetti and meatballs, whether you like it or not, that's what mm-hmm. dad wants. So even in the the 70s and 80s, It was very much like my mom was waiting for my dad to get home because that's when the second shift of her day would begin. Mm -hmm. And depending on his mood, that would just set the tone for the whole, the the rest of the night and maybe into the next morning.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's completely familiar. And that's interesting because of the different generations that, that still existed.
0: Is that what you found you would watch your mother prepare? Oh yes, In every and she way. Um,
1: the lipstick. She before my dad got home, she took a shower, she got dressed. I used to watch her put her makeup on and you know, just make herself pretty, put cologne on. Yes. And then she'd go down to the kitchen where she was making dinner and then I would just stand at the door sort of jealously watching them be together as yeah. they had their evening drink while they were you know, while she was cooking. And he talked, he told her about his day. And it was all about him. And he didn't ask about her day. Right. I
0: was going to say, did he appreciate the effort? Did he say, wow, you look beautiful? Did I he... don't
1: know that. I can't imagine that he did. Okay. I cannot imagine. It, it wouldn't have been in his vocabulary of things to do. But you know, it's, it's an interesting paradox, because when there are defined roles like Aaron, like your mother and and dad and mine, and in its own way, it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody knows where they are all yeah. the time. There's no uncertainty. There might be resentment that you don't like your role, but you know what the role is, and you're not you're not inventing anything. And then when the roles collapse, as maybe they have in certain ways between women and men, and the dynamic between women and men, it throws everything into chaos, right? right. Because no one, no one knows how to behave. Right. And if if a woman
2: is president, for instance, like what, will we, what would we do? It's so, it's so strange to have mommy telling us, you know, <laughs> putting her foot down instead of well, It would be dad. fun to find out.
0: Thanks for listening. Tell Me About Your Father was created and produced by Erin Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. For more information, visit tellmeaboutyourfather.com. Follow us on Twitter at podcast and on Instagram at Tell Me About Your Father. Call our hotline at 888-318-DADS 24 hours a day and tell us about your father. That's 888-318-DADS. This podcast was inspired by Erin's memoir, Don't Let Me Down, which is available where all good books are sold. Episodes were recorded by Rob Hahn at the Playground Studios in Brooklyn and edited by Chris Gellis and Emma Donahue. Our logo was designed by Cicero de Guzman and illustrated by Richard Verges. Special thanks to Mark Sussman, Jessica Suarez, Michael Vecchio and Betsy Lerner.